T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. It is 6.08 in the Twin Cities. Great to be with you on a Saturday night for this holiday weekend, along with Sloan Martin in our newsroom. And also the one and only Jonathan Lowe at the controls here at News Radio 830 WCCO. We have an awesome show lined up for you for this holiday weekend. Uh, we're starting with, in just a few minutes, we're going to hear from somebody who is making news right now, Secretary of State Steve Simon. You actually heard the President of the United States criticizing officials from a number of states who are saying they will not give out personal voter information to the commission, the presidential commission that is looking at alleged voter fraud, uh, the president criticizing those officials in many states. Obviously, he's criticizing Secretary of State Steve Simon because Steve Simon said today he is not going to give out personal information uh, from every single voter in the state of Minnesota. I didn't realize that the Secretary of State's office, and I suppose I should have thought of this, has the information on where I lived, what elections I've voted on. Um, voted in, you know, what primaries I've voted in, even the last four digits of my social security number. The Trump administration has asked all of that for all of that information from secretaries of state all over this country, all 50 states, a number of them, including Minnesota. Secretary of State Steve Simon is saying no. We'll also ask him about uh, allegations that the Russians may have hacked into numerous states' election systems uh, during the 2016 presidential race. Uh, And we're also going to talk later this hour with an attorney about the new workplace rules in Minneapolis with this $15 an hour minimum wage and also the new sick time policies. And think about it. Maybe your company is based in St. Louis Park, but maybe you spend a lot of time working in Minneapolis. How does that affect you? And is this something that is going to spread to other communities Uh, very important. Uh, we've got a lot going on here. My friend uh, David Schultz is actually on vacation, well-deserved. So we're going to, in the 8 o'clock hour, we're going to kind of break it up, do something a little bit different, uh, talking about cyber attacks in general, but also in the 8 o'clock hour. We are number one, folks. You know how Minnesota's always number one in a lot of lists? Well, did you catch this? We're number one for the fattest pets. So uh, seriously, think about that. And I think it's because we spoil our pets. But anyway, we're going to talk to a veterinarian uh, about that and and why that is uh, a source of concern. But let's take a quick break and see if we can get uh, right on with uh, Secretary of State Steve Simon, who has been a very busy guy. A lot going on in the news, folks. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. A lot has been uh, going on, obviously, with the president, a lot of controversy over his tweets and his feud with the hosts of Morning Joe. But there is a very important story. You heard it at the top of the hour from CBS News. The president pushing back on the leaders of some 20 states, uh, election officials, saying they will not comply with a White House commission sweeping request for personal and public data from the nation's 200 million voters. Uh, Both Republican secretaries of state and Democratic secretaries of state are amongst those who are objecting to this. 
Uh, joining me right now is the top election official in the state of Minnesota, Secretary of State Steve, Steve Simon, who is among those election officials saying no to this White House commission that he is not going to release personal information from Minnesota voters that the Secretary of State has. Uh, Secretary of State Steve Simon, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks right. for having me. All right. Let me ask you, when did this first come up? I mean, did you know this was coming? No. The first inkling that I had about this letter was late on uh, Wednesday evening. Uh, late Wednesday evening, and not even that I got it. I heard from a couple other secretaries uh, from other states saying, hey, we just got this letter in. Seems like the kind of thing you're likely to get. So okay. then uh, Thursday so, morning... So you, you get the got, letter? Yeah, we got the letter Thursday morning. And what That's did right. the letter ask, Secretary Simon? Well, the letter was sweeping broad. The letter asked for a number of different categories of information on every single registered voter in Minnesota. That's nearly four million it asked for things as simple as name and address, uh, but as intrusive, in my mind at least, as Social Security number information or military service record or uh, voting history or whether they had lived or voted in another state before. Um, this is personal information. And, and, and you know, my, my first thought is when people in Minnesota registered to vote, I don't think they ever intended or thought that their personal information would end up in some federal database, which looks like what they're trying to construct. So that gave me great pause. And so I uh, uh, talked about it with a lot of people, uh, didn't sort of go off on a knee-jerk decision, talked about it with a lot of people, lawyers, others, and came to the conclusion on Friday that this was not something that we were going to comply with. It was a request. I just want to make that clear to your listeners. This was not a subpoena. This was not an order from a court. It was it was an invitation to provide this information, and I decided to decline that invitation. All right. Well, this is still from a White House commission, and this White House commission is tasked with looking into the, the president, as I understand it, the president's allegation that two to three even million people voted illegally in 2016. And, and that has been debunked by not just Democrats, but Republicans as well. Is that your understanding of what this commission is supposed to do? Yeah, that is my understanding. And that's another thing that really um, caused me great concern which is what are these folks planning on doing with this information? Is it all in service of kind of justifying this, this, this theory about millions of people voting illegally, or is it something else? I'd really want to know that. And, and there's nothing about what they're doing that's, that's transparent here. And the other thing I would say that, that, that um, I find deeply concerning is that the co-chairs of this uh, commission are two people, Vice President Pence and the Secretary of State of Kansas, um, who have very strong opinions about not only that allegation, which they agree with, um, but other aspects of our election system. And by the way, they're entitled to it. They're, they're, they're able and they are articulate people. I happen to disagree with them, but there's nothing wrong with them having a strong opinion. But I would say having that strong, longstanding opinion make them very objective. And so this, this inquiry just doesn't have, to me, the ring of something that's going to be very right. fair or very balanced. And you're certainly not alone, Secretary Simon. Um, at, at least 20 states, uh, secretaries of state, election officials from 20 states, some of them Republicans have said no. I think the Mississippi secretary of state has been quoted a great deal saying uh, – and he's a Republican – saying that uh, – this commission can jump in the Gulf of Mexico, and Mississippi is a great launching point uh, for, for the Gulf of Mexico because, of course, they border the Gulf of Mexico. Um, it, it, let me ask you this. I guess 
When I first saw this story, I guess I thought, well, I, I guess I was a little surprised that – and I forgive me for saying this, but I, I was surprised that you had some of this information. And then I thought, well, obviously the Secretary of State would have your name and your address because that's how they decide where you vote. I just don't remember ever registering with my social security number. Am I just forgetting things, which is certainly no, possible? you're not at all forgetting things. Most people register with a driver's license number. But you are given the option of registering either with a driver's license or with uh, the last four digits of your social security number because some people don't have driver's licenses. So, no, it's not at all. I mean, I'm sure you probably did register with your driver's license, as did I. Uh, but that's still an option. So even the social Do they security want that information? Yes, they wanted the dr- your driver's license information. Well, they wanted identifying information, which could include that kind of stuff. But what was most alarming to me was the explicit request for social security numbers. Now, we wouldn't have that on every voter, but we would have that on a, a great number of them. And the and entire that, social security number? No, it's the la- in Minnesota last at least. It's the last four digits. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I guess I got to tell you, you know, I, I, I think that a lot of people listening here are probably going to be very grateful for you doing that. I mean, I don't think I don't think there's one person out there who has not been somehow involved in some kind of identity theft or, or you know, fraud or whatever. I mean, I personally was in a tough situation with uh, my social security number was actually compromised. And and I, I just think people are really worried about this right now. Let me ask you also about the um, uh, the records of those serving in the military. Is that because some people uh, who serve in the military are able to vote absentee as well they should? And so the, the record of their military service would be, you know, something that you might have? Yes, correct. That's exactly right. There's a, a whole class of voters under federal law and state law who are military and overseas voters. Uh, they are folks who maybe are stationed abroad, uh, but Minnesota is their home base, so to speak, for voting purposes, even though they might not have been here for a couple or even a few years. This is the state from which they went into the service. And even if they're in Afghanistan or Kuwait or elsewhere, this is where they vote. And we would have that record. And uh, it just seemed to me, again, that this is one of those sensitive areas. I'm just not sure why they want this information. And uh, even if I knew more about why they wanted it, I just don't think Minnesotans expect when they register to vote and do their civic duty that this this stuff is going to end up in Washington, D.C. in a cobbled together state by state attempt to build a federal database, which is sure what this looks like to me. Right. And um, all right. So so have you, um, Secretary Simon, have you... Did you write the White House back or this commission back? Well, we haven't before. Uh, July 14th was the requested date by which to respond by letter. I've announced what I'm going to say, but I haven't drafted the letter yet. I'll get it in by July 14th. I'll do them the, the courtesy of that, and I'll formally respond uh, and, and perhaps explain some of my rationale. But I will do that, but I haven't do that, done that yet. Right. And, and you have no idea, and it sounds like these other secretaries of state – have no idea what this what this database is going to be used for. No, I don't. You know, the, the the commission is not even going to meet for the first time until July 19th. So it's kind of speculation. I do have a hunch about what they might do with it. It has to do with Secretary Kobach. He's the Kansas Secretary of State. He's the co-chair, along with Vice President Pence. And he has a database that he likes to use in, Can- in Kansas, and it has invited other states to add to. Uh, which purports to find, uh, you know, uh, undocumented uh, immigrants and others uh, to vote. The problem is, uh, it's, it's a very flawed model. It 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 tags 
a lot of people who are eligible voters as ineligible, and there are a lot of inaccuracies. Anyway, that's my suspicion. Right. But I don't. I don't know that. Uh, July nineteenth is the first meeting, but I, since he has pioneered this particular screening device, which again has been um, criticized for its inaccuracies. Uh, I think that's the kind of thing it looks like he might want to try, but I just don't know. I'm speculating. Right. Well, I, I think, I, you know, I, I the first time I saw it, I just thought this this just seems, as I said, so many people's you know identities and, and information has been compromised to such a degree. And this really is a bipartisan response. So you, you're, you're going to be working on a letter and a response to the president's request. So we, we will definitely continue to follow that and, 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 you know, keep up with you on that. Let me ask you another thing that's been in the news recently is that – in all these hearings with all this investigation into Russian uh, hacking, uh, it has been made public that 21 states across this country did in fact uh, – the Russians made attempts to compromise or hack into 21 individual states because the voting is by state. You're, you're person in charge of that. Uh, was Minnesota in any way compromised? Or do you have any evidence that, that they tried to get into Minnesota's databases? Yeah, we have no evidence that Minnesota was a target or that Minnesota was infiltrated. And there are a couple of layers to my answer. One is that our own cybersecurity efforts, which were greatly enhanced in the last uh, couple of years, um, determined uh, no such you know infiltration. Um, uh, we work for the Department of Homeland Security, uh, they would have notified us by now and would have notified local elections administrators had they been on that list of 21 states. And we've asked them, uh, hey, are we on the list? And they said, well, unless you've been notified or the locals have been notified, you're not. And we haven't been. Um, so not only did we independently not find it, but Department of Homeland Security has not given us that phone call saying that they found it. So um, we're quite confident that we were not among the 21 states. And and the testimony before Congress uh, was about those 21 states where where the attempts were made is that there's no evidence that any votes were changed. Um, You know, going back to this this notion, you know, when people hear the president of the United States say he believes that voter fraud is widespread in this country, two to three million fraudulent votes, the the, the, the individual states, I mean, how much – Control. I mean, it's completely by state, isn't it? That one yes. that, that we vote. Yeah, it is. And even within states, I can't speak for other states, but in Minnesota, it would be really, really hard to pull something like that out. I mean, to use President Trump's number, our pro rata share in Minnesota of the numbers that he's talking about, say three million, for example, would be something like sixty some thousand fraudulent votes, which you and your colleagues in the media would rightly have, you know, screaming headlines. Uh, if that were the case, that would be um, total corruption, and uh, and that's just not the case here at all. Um, and so we in Minnesota have a decentralized system when it comes to the vote counting, so we in our office do not count votes. That happens at the local level in nearly 4,000 different precincts and polling places across Minnesota, which is a great system when it comes to vote tabulation, because if, if there was some mastermind out there trying to switch numbers around, it would take a lot of people in a lot of places. You know, we have 32,000 election judges. That's what it takes to run an election in this state. That's a, that's a small army. And as you know from your own polling place, I'm sure or your listeners do, I mean, those are the people you know. You see yeah. the same people year in and year out. They do it in civic duty. Absolutely. And, um, and, and, you know, a lot of people would have to be in on it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, do you have a figure for – were there, you know, how many uh, – People voted in 2016 who shouldn't have voted, whether they were convicted felons or didn't have yeah. the right address. Yes, in Minnesota. Kind of, yeah, in Minnesota. Um, 
here's what I can say. State law requires that our prosecutors, our county attorneys, report to us all over Minnesota. They have to report to us within 15 days of completing an investigation. So even before they charge, even before they prosecute and convict, just completing an investigation of possible misconduct, they have to report to us. And as of this phone call, that number is nine counties for a total of 16 people. Now, that's 16 too many. I'd love it to be zero. We're always aiming for zero. But you got to put that into some perspective. We had nearly 3 million voters. So the fraction is 16 over nearly 3 million. That is excellent. That is as close to zero statistically as you can get. And, you know, we're always striving for zero. But 16, and that's not even convictions. That's just concluded investigations, which may or may not result in a conviction. And just out of, I mean, that's, that's a tiny, I can't, I'm not that good enough right. at math. It's like right. 0.000, you know, 1%. But what, what, um, and in most of those cases, were they felons? Yeah, most of them were. Who thought they could vote, but could. Okay. Exactly. exactly. All right. Um, and we did have um, a question via um, text here for you, sort of going back to that first issue, this request by the President's Commission. Um, you said that you took a great deal of time to kind of go over this and look at this. Um, did you cons- consult at all with the uh, Minnesota Attorney General's office or any get any legal opinions about this? No, I, uh, not with the Minnesota Attorney General's office, but we have um, probably your own lawyers city with our with our internally. Uh, so uh, we have lawyers in the, within our office, but not with the attorney general's office, no. Okay. And, uh, you know, one of the – you know, the president has been responding sort of all day on this. One of the things he said is, what do they have to hide? What's yeah. your response to that, sir? You know, I understand that. I'm not so sure that uh, that's the best argument for President Trump to be making, given some of the inquiries into things like tax returns. I mean, you can sort of flip that around pretty easily. You know, what do you have to hide by not producing X, Y, and Z? Um, it, it's nothing to hide, uh, except uh, it, it's something to protect, which is people's private information. I'm all for anyone doing a, a, a really honest sort of inquiry on how we can make our system better in Minnesota or elsewhere. Absolutely. But I am quite um, nervous and suspicious about this particular commission and about the scope and the breadth of the information that they're seeking. So it's not about hiding anything. It's about protecting nearly 4 million Minnesotans who have every reasonable expectation that when they register to vote, their stuff is not going to end up in some database for some purpose that we don't even understand. So that's how I would answer that. And, and you know, this is obviously, and we appreciate your time this holiday weekend, this is obviously the, the beginning of a holiday weekend. So far, we're hearing from at least 20 states that are not going to do that. I mean, that's a large number of states, and we don't know if that number is going to grow uh, as as more and more people, such as yourself, people who are in charge of state election systems, are saying, "No, I'm I'm not. Gonna, we're not going to do this. We're not going to be a part of it." It'll be interesting to see how that happens, and also what happens with the president's pushback. Um, but I do want to thank you, um, and I think a lot of people. Uh, this certainly has caught a lot of people's attention. Uh, Secretary of, uh, of State Steve Simon. Um, uh, thank you so much. And when we, I want to say goodbye to you. If you could just uh, spend a second talking to our studio coordinator, Jonathan Lowe, we want to make sure we can reach you next week in case there are any sure. developments on this story. Obviously, uh, you have um, until the 14th, which is uh, obviously not this coming week, but the next week, to, to write a response uh, to the president and want to write it in a pretty detailed fashion. I think so. Detailed enough so that I'm explaining myself and explaining our position. 
All right. Well, Secretary of State Steve Simon, thank you so much. And Jonathan, I'll just make sure we have your right contact sure. information. Uh, always a pleasure. Uh, Secretary of State Steve Simon, folks, one of those election leaders uh, across the country who's saying they do not, they will not comply with this commission's request for personal information on 4 million Minnesota voters. Uh, it includes your name, your address, your uh, voting history, where you voted, when you voted, uh, perhaps even uh, parts of your social security number, uh, perhaps even your military records. Uh, the secretary is saying that he plans to work uh, and respond to the president's commission's request with a no. And as I said, he is not alone. There are a number of uh, states, at least 20 so far, that are saying they will do just that. All right, folks, we are going to take a break. We're going to give you some holiday weather forecast. There's good news for tomorrow. Uh, and we also want to, uh, in the next half hour, visit with an attorney about some of the new workplace rules having to do with wages and also sick time, what you need to know. So keep it here at News Radio 830 WCCO. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It is 6.34 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock, along with studio coordinator Jonathan Lowe. Well, this half hour, we're going to talk about some new workplace rules in the city of Minneapolis, also I believe in the city of St. Paul, and also that new $15 an hour wage. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, what does it mean if you are working for a company that is based in St. Louis Park, but they've got an office here in Minneapolis? Are you affected? We're going to sort through all of that with Lisa Schmidt. She is an attorney at Nylon, Johnson & Lewis. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Esme. All right, let me, let me ask you, before we get to the $15 an hour uh, wage issue, let me ask you about the sick leave and, and general leave policies that were passed by Minneapolis and St. Paul. What do those say and how does that affect people who might work in Minneapolis, but maybe their company's not based here? Okay, that's actually a good question. Um, the law, the, both laws originally called for application outside of the city. So if a worker lived in St. Louis Park but was, or, and working in Minneapolis, uh, but the company was based in St. Louis Park, excuse me, they would be covered. But the Chamber of Commerce in the state sued, and the district court held that that extraterritorial application was not valid. So right now, um, only companies that have a physical presence in both cities are affected by the uh, sick leave laws. Oh, okay. So I mean, over. I mean, only. Um, so only uh, companies that have a physical presence in either Minneapolis or St. Paul. That's correct. Are yeah. covered. Okay. So even if you were, um, uh, let's just say, the delivery service was headquartered, or the beverage delivery service was headquartered in St. Louis Park. But they did have a warehouse that you worked of out of in Minneapolis. Would you be covered because the warehouse was in Minneapolis? That's where it gets complicated. So the folks who are based out of the Minneapolis office and work in Minneapolis, and arguably the city St. Louis Park workers that come into the city too, would all be covered because of that Minneapolis warehouse. So that would draw the coverage for for the work okay. done. In the city. So it's the physical presence. That's correct. Okay, yes. and it's are both the St. Paul laws and the Minneapolis laws on leave are they pretty much the same? And can you kind of summarize them? Yeah, they are pretty similar. Um, they each call for um, workers, pretty much every worker, to accrue one hour of paid leave for every 30 hours worked. 
Um, there are very few exceptions to that. One of them would be construction workers who have the prevailing wage, for example. Um, it applies to temporary and seasonal employees in both cities, um, so it's very broad. And uh, accruals cap at 48, hour, 48 hours per year, um, but basically employees are going to accrue um, pay leave and be able to use that time. Um, the difference is in St. Paul, uh, St. Paul, unlike Minneapolis, it requires paid leave for all employees, whereas Minneapolis says employers who have five employees or less, can, they have to provide leave, but it doesn't have to be paid. And okay. St. Paul gave one short um, extension for smaller employees. Their effective date is actually not for six more months yet. Okay. All right. So it's um, – now, what if your company's sick leave policy is more generous than six days a year? That's an excellent question. Uh, employers in that situation should still pay attention because there's a whole lot more to these laws than just the time. Um, you, th- the laws both say that is, if you provide more time than it's required or the minimum required, you're good, but you still have to abide by the notice provisions, the record-keeping provisions, and um, the, all the host of other things, so the accrual schedule, for example. So you're not off the hook just because you might have a generous policy. You should still pay attention. Oh, okay. And, and what is the reporting requirements? Record-keeping, I'm sorry. I, I may have yeah, Record-keeping, yeah. yeah. So the employers have to track how much... Uh, how many hours employees are working, and how much time they're accruing, and how much time they've used. And that all has to go on a pay stub, and then probably it should go somewhere else too. Um, and that way if they're audited or if an employee brings forth a complaint, they can pull out their records and be able to defend themselves. Okay. What about um, the law requiring – Because as I and, and does this affect like you know maternity leave or paternity leave? Uh, you would probably coordinate it with that, but it's not – Those are separate. Yes, they're separate. Okay. Let me ask you, because as I understand it, the law, at least in Minneapolis, I don't know if this is also the case in St. Paul, allows you, if you don't use all your days, to um, kind of stockpile them. Is that right? That's right. You can carry over up to 80 hours of leave each year. Um, Employers can avoid that rollover requirement by front-loading the time each year, but that's got its own issues, too. So there are options. And so you can accrue, because I think the maximum leave you could get was 48 hours. 40 hours per year, but... Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, let's say I don't take any this year, and then I accrue my 48 the next year, then I would have, you know more and then I can roll over my full 80. Oh, but you can't you can't accrue cuz I actually do know people who have worked for um I want to say with the post office. Uh or I I know somebody who 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 told me a story about how their father ended up retiring a year early because he had all this accrued sick leave <laughs> or whatever. Um, yeah. so so you can't so the most so the maximum under the requirement is 48 that you can accrue in one year, yes. But but under the law, under the law, if you have a if your office has a physical presence in Minneapolis or St. Paul, you can um, sort of stockpile up to eighty hours. That's exactly right. Yes. Okay. Now, how does that work with the law starting now? Um, actually, as of today, July one, the laws are in effect for most employers. Like I said, St. Paul has that exception for smaller employers, and they're, they're not coming online for another six months. Um, but 
starting today, hours worth in each city with the physical presence uh, result in one hour of accrual per every 30 hours worked. So hopefully most employers are ready to go. I, I suspect they're not based on the calls I've been receiving. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> but I think a lot of people have paid attention to this and are trying to get into compliance. Well, and, and well let, let me ask you because, I mean, I just, for example, for the people who work here, um, they don't, you know, there's no accrual. We get a, we have eight eight sick days maximum. Many people don't take them all. I certainly don't. Um, but does that mean I can accrue eight sick days starting so I, January? In your policy, is they just give you eight days? Is that what, I, Right. And then it's gone. It's like, you know, I usually use maybe two or three. Okay. So they would have to allow you to roll over some of that time, you know, up to 80 hours um, under the, the way the, the law works right now. So um, I wouldn't, you shouldn't have it just disappear each year unless... Well, they are front-loading it. It sounds like they're front-loading it, right? I mean, you're getting a grant every year of the eight days. Right. There's a, you're starting January 1st through yeah. December 31st. You get like – and I think a lot of companies are like this. You get eight sick days. Some people okay. take all eight. Most people don't. Well, that would not be compliant in the second year of the law because a second year of law, if you choose the front-loading route, you have to provide up the full 80 hours. So that unless you have 10-hour days at your company, which you might, um, eight, eight days would not be sufficient actually. Oh, okay. So would the sick days from this year that you don't use roll over to next year? Uh, yes, they should. Wow. Okay. Well, well but, to, that's but, 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 let me, but remember, if you, I, like, if you front load, it doesn't have to roll over. So your company has chosen to front load, but they won't be in compliance when they don't front load enough the second year. It's complicated. I know. Okay. I guess, I guess it, like, so what, what happens to somebody like me if I don't use all my sick days? So this year, if you don't use all your sick days and your company chooses next year to give you a fresh eight, nothing. That your, your, your time would disappear and your fresh eight would show up on January 1. Okay. And then what happens the next year? And well, I don't the next use- year they should give you 10 um, if they're going to choose the front loading to be in compliance with the law. Uh, otherwise, they're short by two, by 20 or excuse me, 16 hours, I guess. Would be the- this is really complicated because I'm having it's trouble following you. <laughs> I know. I apologize. It's very complicated. And this is what, you know, I spend time helping people get in compliance with this. So, um, what, what, are, um, what is the biggest problem people are having? Uh, I think a lot of people are assuming just because they provide enough that they're, that they're in compliance. But the questions that you just propose show that they might not be. Um, you might be saying, hey, we're giving people plenty of time. But it, it, in the second year, you wouldn't be. Um, so there's that big assumption that just because because they, they they would have to like let's say nobody used any of their sick days this year they'd still have to give you credit for next year right they have to give you fresh set, the fresh set next year that's right um, so and then maybe be, there's confusion still about coverage to which begs your earlier question and that that confusion is actually well placed because the the, the Minneapolis law is still under uh, question in, in the courts uh, the court of appeals is going to hear the case in early July so the challenge is oh. live to the Minneapolis law. Oh, okay. So the challenge, this is to the sick leave law. That's correct. Yes. The Minneapolis sick leave law is still being challenged. And, you know, like I said, the district court held that it couldn't be applied extraterritorially. St. Paul voluntarily adopted that position. And now we'll have to wait and see what the Court of Appeals does. But I don't suspect that will come out for another three, three, three months, I guess. is about right. Okay. And so the issue there is, is the issue of the physical presence? There's three issues, actually. Um, the chamber argued uh, in the district court level that the law was preempted by state law and it was in conflict with state law and argued that the extraterritorial application was not valid. The court did not agree with the, the preemption and the conflict arguments, but did say, yes, you can't apply this law extraterritorially. All the parties appealed. 
So the city said, you're wrong on extraterritorial application. The chamber said, you're wrong on the preemption and the conflict. And now it's up for the Court of Appeals to wow. decide. And like I said, there's a hearing scheduled on July 11th, actually. Wow. Okay. All right. Lisa Schmidt is an attorney with Nylon Johnson & Lewis. Uh, I bet you're getting a ton of calls here because it is really yeah. confusing. Yeah, I spent a lot of time since this came out um, helping folks get in compliance. Absolutely. Right. And what is the penalty if, if employers are not in compliance? Um, well, in St. Paul, if, you, if you're retaliating against someone, there's a civil action. So you could be sued and you know, have to pay damages. But in Minneapolis, the city, and in both cities, actually, the city uh, human rights organizations will investigate claims and they can, assign, they can um, make you pay back pay. They can make you reinstate a fired employee if you fired someone, and they can hit you with fines and penalties that go to the uh, state. So wow, okay, yeah. So in problem is you can be dinged for a lot of things under the laws, yeah. right? It's not just the failure to provide time. Uh, you screwed up record keeping. Now you have to pay a fine. And how about um, so? Um, and for part time workers, you have to. They have to give you one hour for every thirty hours worked. That's that's exactly right. So they'll accrue slower, but they still have to accrue. And that's where some um, some businesses are screwing up, too. They kind of assume – I've seen a lot of policies come into my office that say part-time workers don't get any paid time off. Well, that's completely in violation. So they have to figure out how to start having them accrue, too. And, and can they accrue if they are not used um, just the way that the full-time workers are? Yeah, exa- it, should, it should be exactly the same. It's just they'll accrue slower because of the hours worked. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. This this Seasonal is seasonal workers too, as me. So it's every like if you're a big company and you hire, let's say, a whole bunch of people in the summer to do outside work, those people all accrue. So they may have uh, eligibility if they last longer than ninety days, which is how long you have to wait to use it. They may have a bunch of sick leave that they could use. Oh, okay. So you got to work ninety. So if you work like three or four weeks, that won't be it. Okay. Correct. Yeah. So it may, like if you, it's more like a you know a half half year type assignments. Would, would come into play there. Right. Um, okay, Jonathan, I'm sorry. What, what is the question here? Uh, we just had a listener question calling in, uh, basically wondering about whether if there was an exemption for teachers and employees of schools, uh, the school districts in both Minneapolis and St. Paul, for this, uh, for what has been passed. No, even though I imagine a lot of teachers are subject to collective bargaining agreements, both cities have made clear that even if you're subject to a contract like that, it does not um, exempt you from coverage. And it's true if you're not. If teachers not subject to CBAs would also be covered. Interestingly, though, Minneapolis did allow uh, people who have collective bargaining, companies that have collective bargaining agreements, an extra year to renegotiate those collective bargaining agreements to get into compliance. So that is one, you know, bone that was thrown to employers at least. But no, there's no exception for teachers. Okay. All right. Well, it sounds like a lot of people are going to have to make some adjustments. Um, let me ask you, um, I'll tell you what, let's take a quick break because I do want to get into uh, th- this issue of the $15 an hour wage, which sure. was passed in Minneapolis, because that I'm sure has a lot of people wondering about things as well. Um, so let's take a quick break. We'll have more with Lisa Schmidt. She's an attorney with Nyland Johnson & Lewis uh, about all of these changes in terms of work rules and, and pay rules uh, for Minneapolis and also for St. Paul. Your WCCO time check is 650 McCarthy Otter World, where you can save 20% off of MSRP on select Buick lacrosses. Chatting here with uh, Lisa Schmidt, an attorney for Nyland Johnson and Lewis, about all the workplace rule changes for Minneapolis and St. Paul. We want to get to that $15 a wage that was just passed by the city council in Minneapolis, but we have another very good question, question from a, a listener. 
Uh, Lisa, a gentleman called in and spoke with Jonathan and says he works in Minneapolis and his employer does give him paid vacation but does not give him paid sick leave. What does that mean? That's an excellent question. Both both St. Paul and Minneapolis's laws allow uh, employers to take that kind of leave, paid PTO, vacation, other paid leave, and, and apply it to this. Those employers, though, would still have the notice obligation, so they would have to revise their handbook, for example, to say our vacation time counts toward the Minneapolis and or St. Paul sick leave policy. So that's oh, what okay. they would have to do. So, so that gentleman who just called, he might get a two weeks paid vacation, but let's say he comes down with the flu his employer could require him to take the four or five days he needs to take off to recover from the flu from his vacation. Correct. And he still would be able to, would he still be able to carry stuff over? Or? Yeah. The, the, if you're going to take your vacation or PTO and count it for the paid sick leave, you have to follow the other requirements. You have to accrue fast enough, so one for 30. You have to be allowed to carry some over, and you have to be allowed to use it for all the purposes that are covered in the law. So that is pretty broad. Um, that would include, you know, your, your child's school is closed for weather, which is, a, you know, as we all know, an issue in Minnesota. That, that they would have to be allowed to use it for the same purposes. So it, it does, it, what it does is kind of narrows your it narrows your focus on vacation and you have to, you know, follow these specific rules in, in, in regard to that. Um, okay. All right. Well, let me ask you about the uh, the new rules with the wages. This is obviously sure. being phased in and this is just from Minneapolis. And it is a little complicated about which, uh, you know, the time differences uh, for the phase in. It depends on how many employees you have. Uh, tell us about that. Sure. Um, so just this Friday, yesterday, I guess, um, Minneapolis adopted the $15 minimum wage ordinance. That does not mean $15 an hour kicks in immediately. There's a schedule for both large and small employers, like you noted. Large employers generally have 100 or um, 100 or more, or more than 100, excuse me, more than 100 employees, and small is the opposite, so smaller than 100 or smaller. Uh, the schedules for each is different. Um, by July 1, 2020, 2022, Large employers will be at $15 an hour, and it'll take until 2024 for small employers to hit the $15 an hour wage. So, like I said, it's slower for the small folks. And then uh, the same question. What if you have the company that's based in St. Louis Park, and you've got the guy who is does all his work in Minneapolis? Maybe he works out of the warehouse here in Minneapolis. Okay, so if there's, if there's a physical location in Minneapolis for sure going to be covered. But unlike, you know, this law took the same approach as Minneapolis sick leave and says all work in the city is covered as long as you hit the two hours a week minimum threshold. So I could have, a, I could be based in Duluth and send delivery drivers into Minneapolis to do routes. That work would be covered under this law. Now I suspect it'll face a legal challenge just like the other law did, but for now that's going to be covered. And large employers have to come into compliance as soon as January 1, 2018. So really oh, okay. Soon. So, so even even if you are, and I'm sure that this probably involves a lot of people. Let's say you are a delivery driver, and your main routes are Minneapolis, or or maybe it's Minneapolis and, and one suburb. Do you, you do you have to kind of track how many hours you're driving around Minneapolis? You've called you've called out the exact problem with this kind of law. Yes, I mean this is an employer's nightmare, right? If I've got a guy who works every other day in Minneapolis for four hours here, five hours there, six hours there. That, though that's going to be at a higher wage, and then the other hours are going to be the regular wage. And then let's say he works overtime. <laughs> it complicates overtime rate. It's, it's really going to be a headache for employers that, that send folks into the city to work. Um, and in terms of you know, trying to do that, um, who's going to enforce this? 
Uh, that's going to be the Minneapolis Department of Civil Rights is going to be the agency that does that. Okay. I, I bet you're getting calls on this one, too. Yeah. Um, we, we got calls and emails already yesterday and Friday. We sent out an update pretty quick. And, yes, there's people who are concerned. And, and, and you know, and the big issue, too, and you probably follow this, as Esme, is that there's no tip credit in this law. And so for, for businesses that have tipped employees, there was there's quite a bit of um, – outrage over that development. Well, I know, and, and they're concerned that, that they're going to, you know, that, that restaurants are going to close and that right. kind of thing. So there's, there, there's an awful lot going on there. Well, listen, Lisa Schmidt, thank you so much for this uh, information because it does affect an awful lot of people. <laughs> right, yeah. It's not just Minneapolis. I've been telling my clients that it's not, this minimum wage especially is not just Minneapolis. And the paid sick leave could come back on board for everybody too, depending on how that court decision comes down in the fall. Right, and you're expecting that in the fall, and and that the main issue again is the physical presence, right? That, and I guess the court could say the chamber's right altogether, and the law is just preempted by state law, and then the law will go away. So this would be an exercise in futility <laughs> for all of us, but okay. um, I suspect that won't happen. That's my okay. gut. All right. Well, listen, uh, thank you so much. Uh, really very informative, and obviously a lot of people kind of wondering exactly how this affects them. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate that, and thank you so much for joining us this uh, evening. Thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, the time. All right, folks. Uh, Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. Uh, much more ahead. Uh, we are going to listen to an expert on Minnesota rodeo coming up in the next hour. Keep it here. News Radio. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.